I just want to encourage you to open up to 2 Kings. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4 tonight. And as we do, man, God's just got some incredible things for us. And I, I continue to, to pray about where I put my glasses. <laughs> yeah. That it turns the words from fuzz to letters. That's important. I haven't memorized 2 Kings chapter 4, so that's helpful. I continue to pray. God's going to pour out his spirit and do great things. We see uh, the beginning of that occurring at the men's retreat this last weekend. Super stoked about all the stuff that God did. Um, but uh, we're, we were not ever just praying for a moment. We're praying for a movement. So, uh, you know, and I think God's got word for us. I think God's got a message for us. I think God wants to do some amazing things if we would simply get ourselves out of the way and allow God to move. So often the, the part that creates uh, strife in the body of Christ and that creates um, like a dullness or, a, or a, a numbness in the Spirit of God is us. We do that. We do that because our focus becomes self-centered. Our prayers become self-centered. Our desires become self-centered. And and as we look at, at 2 Kings chapter 4, we see a man of God, Elisha, called to lead the school of the prophets and to be the leader, not just for that school, but God's man on the scene in the northern kingdom of Israel where not very many people are following the Lord at all. But he, he meets several people in 2 Kings chapter 4 that are in need of a touch from God. Now, I don't know for you guys, I know for me, just about every day, I am in need or looking for a touch from God. I'm striving to be found in His presence. And not just to be found there, but to stay there, to walk there through the day. And when His presence, when I feel a distance in His presence, that's my, that's my signal. i got something going on in my head. I don't know if it ever happens to you. Kathy has this Bible study on Fridays, and they've been going through the Gospel of John and uh, the, the, the lady who's teaching the study, they're, they're doing a DVD study, um, uh, Cheryl Broderson. She talked about something that was so perfect for, for I don't, my own life and things that I experienced. She talked about, you know, coming home and, and uh, she said, my husband said that one thing. Now, you guys all know what that one thing is, right? <clears throat> Sometimes something in our day, there's that, there's that one thing that just will set us off. Now, it doesn't have to be a husband or wife, but for Cheryl, it was her, her husband who had shared it. And so she's struggling with it. She's angry, and she goes for a walk. And I like what she said. She said she's walking, and she's talking to herself. And, and as she's doing it, you know, she's entertaining all these thoughts and all these negative ideas and, and um, you know, being angry at her husband. And then she said that the devil overplayed his hand because he said to her, you should just leave him. And when he did that, she recognized, oh, I'm on a walk with the devil. Now, I experience that in my life. I don't know if you do, but I experience that in my life. When somebody does something, says something, it can even be at church. You know, somebody, you walking by, somebody says something. Maybe they mean something by it. Maybe they don't. But it just frosts your wagon. And you get irritated or, or whatever. And, and then I go home and... I mean, I, I can't, I, 
It happens. That's not all the time, but it happens. I go home and I can't go to sleep because I'm mad or I'm irritated. And the next thing I know, and I might not be outside walking, but I'm on a walk with the devil. And, and he starts whispering all these things into my head and I'm letting him in there. I'm letting him because I'm feeling justified because this brother or this sister or my wife or my child or whatever did something and I'm hot. And man, I, I'm tired of walking with the devil. I'm tired of it. I'm tired about overreacting to things and getting angry about stuff I don't need to be angry about. And, and what causes all that is all of a sudden when I'm offended, listen, when I'm offended, I am now central. Whatever we were talking about and whatever we were dealing with, as soon as I get offended... I have made myself the central issue in our conversation. And now you've offended me and I can't believe, don't you know who I am or what, you know, all the dumb stuff that we can do because we become central. It's a dead giveaway because all the conversation from that point on has a lot of eyes in it. Well, I never, I can't believe I, why would anybody treat me like that? Whatever. I have moved central. What is it that God wants for us? God wants him to be central. And I think as we look at the stuff that the Lord has for us in 2 Kings chapter 4, we can see what God can do in the lives of of men and women when they make a choice to say, you know what? God's going to be central. He's going to be the central issue. And for them in the Old Testament... The ability to talk to God wasn't as easy as you and I. The throne of grace is open. We can all come boldly before the throne of grace and make our petitions known to God. But in those days, they would look for a man of God, a prophet or a priest. Well, in the northern kingdom, there's no priests. They're all false. And there's a lot of false prophets. But you know what? No matter how things look, you know that God always has his man. He always has his man for the moment. He always has his champion available. And that's what we see in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha and said, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Now what we have here is a very desperate situation. You have a widow whose only way of support was her husband, but her husband has died. Now the, the other two, according to the law, according to God's word, that would help their mom out would be the two sons. But because they're in debt, because they, they're left with the debt, and, and one of the things that's going on right now, we'll see more when we get to chapter 8, there's a famine. And whenever there's a famine, you guys know what happens to the cost of food, right? The cost of bread, the cost of grain, the cost of everything goes up. And sooner or later, it's outside your ability. Well, this is what's going on here. And so her husband died. The other thing you want to notice about her husband, he was part of the school of the prophets. There were three of them in the northern kingdom. Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. So here we have Elisha. Near one of those three cities, a woman comes to him, says, my, my husband died, I'm in debt, and the creditor is coming for my kids. Now, what the creditor would do is take the sons as indentured servants, slaves, and until either they paid it off or the year of Jubilee. 
At the year of Jubilee, the debt would be forgiven. They could go back home. But in the meantime, what happens to mom? She's a widow with no support. And whether or not she would be able to glean enough for herself, she's in a desperate place. You ever been in a desperate place? She's in a desperate place. Where does she go? She goes to the man of God. She comes to Elisha because Elisha at that time speaks for the Lord. And so she brings her problem to him who is going to bring her problem before the Lord. Look what happens. It says, it says that, so Elisha said to her, what would you like me to do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Listen, this is so key in understanding the centrality of God because God is always going to use what you have, not what you don't have. A lot of times when we talk about what can I do for the Lord? How might I serve the Lord? How might I minister in His name? We can concentrate on the things we don't have. Maybe we say, well, I don't sing very good, so and I don't play an instrument. When I don't really teach very well, what, what am I focusing on? First, I'm making myself central again, but I'm focusing on what I don't have. Listen, God is not going to call you to serve in what you don't have. He's going to say to you, what do you have? You remember when Moses came to him and said, I'm not worthy, God, I can't do it, I can't be your spokesman? Do you remember what God said to him? Moses, what's in your hand? Stick. He's got a staff. Stick. Not really worth much. So God said, Moses, throw your staff on the ground. He throws it on the ground. You remember what happened? Snake. The Bible says it became a snake and Moses didn't like snakes. Do you know how we know Moses didn't like snakes? When he threw it on the ground, the Bible says... He jumped back. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of snakes either. At least when I know that something's not rattling on their back end, I'm better. But until I know nothing's rattling back there, I don't, I don't much like them. He throws it down and, he, and then he backs away from it. And then the Lord says to him, pick it up. So the Bible says he reached down and grabbed it by the tail. And when he lifted it up, it became a staff again. What was the Lord saying? Moses, I'll use what's in your hands. It's just a stick. There was nothing magical about that staff. It wasn't, you know, from some school of wizards or something. And he happened upon it in the middle of the desert. No, it was just what he had in his hand. Elisha says to this woman, what do you have? What do you have in your house? What do you have? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And this oil, the word for this oil means it was anointing oil, not cooking oil. So this is anointing oil. Anointing oil would be used, in the, especially in Oriental culture, when they, when they cleansed, when they took a bath or, or cleaned themselves, they would put this oil on. And so that's all she's got, anointing oil, a little bit of anointing oil that she has there in her house. So he said to her, go borrow vessels from everywhere everywhere from all your neighbors empty vessels and do not gather just a few get as many empty vessels as you can you see what elisha is telling her even in the midst of her need he says i want you to continue to plan for the fulfillment of god's promise i want you moving forward i want you preparing for god's promise so he says get empty vessels Get empty vessels. Get empty vessels. So she goes to all her neighbors and gets all the empty vessels, empty vases, empty cups, empty whatever she can get that will hold something. He says, gather it all. What's he saying? When you have come in, 
You will shut the door behind you and your son. So close the door. It's just not about anybody else. It's just between you and the Lord. Close the door. Go into your house. And then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. Now, some people think this doesn't take faith. She's got one thing left in her house. A, a vessel of some sort, a vase, whatever, filled with anointing oil. That's all she got. And God says, get other vessels and I want you to pour it out. Pour it into them. You've got to pour out what you have. Here's the interesting thing, guys. Throughout the scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And what we see in this miracle is the Holy Spirit continue to flow out of this vessel continuously as long as there was an empty vessel being poured into. Ever feel dry? Ever feel like you're kind of out of sync with the Lord? Ever feel like I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing? And that dryness, let me tell you what's happening. The Holy Spirit is not flowing through your life because you are not pouring out. At the end of my day, I just don't have anything left. It's the same thing she said. I don't have anything left. I just got a little bit. And Elisha said, you pour it out. You trust God. And as long as she was obedient, pouring it out into empty vessels, the oil flowed. The oil flowed. See, we were not meant to be vessels to contain the Holy Spirit. We were meant to be a hose to deliver the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit might flow through us. That the Holy Spirit might minister to the needs of people around us. That God maybe would give us a word for a brother or sister that we could pray for him. That, uh, that just like Joe did today. Or Keith, if I got a need, I should be able to come to the, to the body and say, Hey, I need prayer. And receive it. But we don't got to be stingy with it. <laughs> It'll keep flowing. It'll keep working. And so that's what she does. Look what happens in the pages of Scripture. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the vessels to her. And she poured it out. She kept pouring out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So what happened? The oil ceased. That's the same way we dry up. You don't want to dry up? You've got to put yourself in service through the Lord, doing whatever it is that you're called to do, pouring into empty vessels. If I continue to try to pour into myself, I'll have no oil. I'll use it up. I'll get dry. I'll run out of juice. But if I'm pouring it into others... Hey, what's our natural tendency? As soon as self sits on the throne, our natural tendency is to say, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I was, maybe you work in a store and everybody who came into the store complained. Maybe you work in a preschool and every child in the preschool screamed all day long. And I'm just tired and I don't want to be around people. Maybe you spend all day counseling or visiting with people or I don't know. Maybe you spend all day in the field. Maybe you are super tired, wore out, wiped out. You will always feel dry if you are not pouring out. Jesus said, if you would come after me, 
you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and implement of torture. And follow me. What do we see Jesus do? Every time you see him, what's he doing? He's healing somebody. He's ministering to somebody. He's teaching somebody the word. He rises up early, tries to go to a place where he can connect with the Father for a while. And then what happens immediately? The people find out where he's at and they come. Never once do you see Jesus frustrated or angry at the crowds. What do you see? Him filled with compassion. All the time on Scripture you see he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. He came out to the wilderness. John the Baptist met him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, arose. The Father from heaven said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came upon him and his ministry began. From that moment forward he did everything he did the same way you and I do it. By pouring out. And that's what we see in this woman. The first thing that we see, the first thing that we're taught, man, she is pouring out. And as she poured out, what does she do when she has all of this? Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, well, go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply... Shall supply. All your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. God, is God able? Listen, I think sometimes, I mean, I catch myself doing it too. God is able, God is able, God is able. You know what that scripture says, right? We, we, sometimes we forget to do the whole verse. Our God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine through or by the power that works through us. Me. Me. He'll supply our need as we pour out. He'll supply the need as we pour out. We want to be men and women who are being filled and being used by God to pour out the Holy Spirit. Oh, we come to the next story. A Shunammite woman. Look at verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunam, and there was a notable woman. She was persuaded, and oh, sorry, and she persuaded him to eat some food. Now I want to make a, a, a little note here because sometimes we read through these things and we don't know it. Uh, I don't know. Different versions may say different things. My Bible says notable. Your Bible may say great. Your Bible may say wealthy. Your Bible may say a lot of things. I'll make it real simple for you. The word that's used here, this is the only time it's ever used of a woman, is the word gadol, and it means great. This was a great woman. Now, some people think she was poor. Some people think she was rich. Some people think a lot of different things because that word is only ever used of one woman in the whole Bible, and this is her. That's kind of intense. That means there's something special happening here. When I see that this is the one and only, my eyes start to get a little wider. Oh, what's going on, God? What's happening? This was a great woman, and I think there are several things that make her great. The first one we see here in verse 8, she was a woman of hospitality. So Elisha's just passing by, right? And she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. So first we see this woman was a woman of hospitality. She, she opened her house to Elisha. She didn't open her house to everybody. 
But she opened her house to Elisha, who was the prophet in the area, traveling between the schools of the prophets, doing whatever teaching he was doing at those schools and raising those guys up and talking to kings and all the other stuff that he was doing. He would pass by her house and she would always have something for him to eat. That's what made her great. doesn't matter how much you have or how much you don't have. No matter what we have, we can be men and women of hospitality. Of hospitality, willing to reach out. Well, look what happens. In verse 9 it says, And she said to her husband, Look, now I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. So at first she just knows she, he's a man of God. But now she knows there's something special about Elisha. Now she calls him a holy man of God. This is, this is somebody special. So look at verse 10. So she said, please let us make a small upper room on the wall. This is what's called a aliyah. Aliyah is the same term used for the upper room that Jesus and the disciples would gather in for the Last Supper. Same term used where the, where the disciples gathered before the day of Pentecost in the upper room. What it was is it's, it's this room, sometimes small, sometimes large. It just depended on who owned what. But most often it's a small room often called a cooling chamber. Summers get hot and they'd go up there and there'd be a lot of windows, a lot of open lattice. And you could go up there and up there you would place a bed and a, and a table and it would be somewhere where you could go and just have some quiet time. So they're building basically in addition, the, the stairs on the outside of their house would go up to this aliyah. And they would go up to that and there they would be able to have some quiet time. But they built it specifically for Elisha. When he's traveling by and he needs a place to rest or he needs a quiet place to call on the name of the Lord. So they built this place for him, this upper room. And let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Man, what a, what a blessed woman. Not only was she a woman of hospitality, but she's also a woman of spirituality. Why? Because she recognized in Elisha that he is a holy man of God. She recognized that God was using him in mighty ways. She recognized this about him. She perceived that, that there was a lot happening with Elisha and that spirit was strong with him and that God was doing a great thing for him. So she provided for him a quiet place to rest. That's why she was great. Well, it says in verse 11, it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and he lay down there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. Now she's standing before Gehazi, not before Elisha yet. <clears throat> and he said to him, Say now, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? So there's a three-way conversation happening I want you guys to see. Oftentimes in those days, the rabbi would not talk to a woman alone because it, was, it showed impropriety. The Bible talks about that. It says that there, there shouldn't be the appearance of evil in our lives. Not that we're intending to sin, but sometimes things just look wrong. You know, a long time ago, Kathy's mama told her that if your husband's not home, don't let another man in the house. 
Same kind of concept, the, the impropriety. So Elisha's in the cooling chamber, Gehazi's standing out, and maybe the Shunammite woman's at the bottom of the stairs. And so Elisha says to Gehazi, his servant, ask her, you've been so kind to us, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? So there's this three-way conversation happening. He says, what can we do? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king? So Elisha's got influence. Or perhaps to the commander of the army. And she answered, I dwell among my own people. She is a woman of contentment. Elisha's trying to give her the golden ticket. You know, what do you want? What can I do for you? I'll do anything. Whatever you ask. I'll talk to the king. I can do whatever. Elisha's a pretty powerful guy. He's got the spirit of God in him. He can can do anything as we've already seen. And she says, I got everything I need. I don't need nothing. I'm, I just live among the people. What do I have to do with the king? I'm just a country girl. What do I need a commander of the army for? I don't have any problems. I'm, everything's good. Whatever she was. The Bible says that Paul said that I have learned in whatsoever shape I am in to be content in all things, whether I abase or abound, <laughs> whether I'm doing good or bad. I'm content. And so, the same way here. She says, man, I got everything I need. She's content. So he said, what then is to be done for her? Now, what's what's happening in verse 14, the Shunammite woman has said, I'm good. I got everything I need. And she goes back in the house. And Gehazi and Elisha are talking now. So he says, what is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. So he said to her, call her. So when he called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The the greatest desire in her heart in Oriental culture would be to have a child. To be barren was the worst of all things. So it would be, she would be so excited to have a child, to, to give birth. I mean, that would have been her greatest desire. And so she's afraid to trust in that. She's afraid to believe. So, oh, you know, don't tell me something that, that, that's not going to happen. Don't, don't say something that won't be done. You know, they say that the wealthiest person is not the person who has the most, but the person who needs the least. That's what made her a great woman. So, Elisha said, this time next year. Verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So that following year, she gave birth, had a child. Now many years have passed, verse 18, and the child grew. Now it happened one day. He went out to his father, to the reapers. He's out working in the field. And he says to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. And what that implies is somehow he has a very intense headache. Some people think maybe heat stroke. I kind of go along the lines of an aneurysm. doesn't really make any difference. He has some intense headache and he's on the ground, passed out. They carry him to his mom. They pick him up and carry him to the mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then he died. So they brought him and laid him on her lap. She held him, 
in her room until the boy died. Listen to this. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. Listen. She's not preparing for a burial. Do you catch that? She's she's praying for a miracle. She's not preparing for a burial. She goes in and lays her son on Elisha's bed and then she goes out. And she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And he said, Why are you going to him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. Literally what he says is, What are you going to church for? It's not Sunday. What are you doing? Listen to what she says. It is well. It's going to be okay. She didn't even tell her husband that the child's dead. All she says is it is well. It's all going to be all right. I love that. Every time I think about that, I think about the, the, you know, the hymn, It Is Well, with my soul. I think about the story behind that song, and I realize that's the same thing that this Shunammite woman's doing. She lays her child there on Elisha's bed. She goes and asks her husband for a guy. Now, the guy, the servant, has it rough. The servant's job is to run behind the donkey and whip it. And her job is to hold on to the donkey. And anytime the donkey wants to slow down, the servant whoops the donkey again. Just seems rough. That just seems like a rough... But that's how they do it. Look what she says. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward and do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. Don't slow down. Now she's getting... Her bones jarred pretty good too on that donkey. As that donkey's running... I don't know if you ever rode a donkey... I have been in Israel. When they talk about a donkey, it's what we might call a, a burro. They're they nothing good about them at all. Yeah, it was it is miserable. In fact, they should put them in a rodeo. <laughs> to be honest, because <laughs> you got to be all man to hold on to that thing. So this. And they're little bitty things. But anyways, this lady gets on it and, and he starts whooping that thing and it takes off running. And she departed and went to the man of God who was at Mount Carmel. Now there's just a, a small note on this. The man of God, Elisha, would commonly go to Mount Carmel. Here's what that was all about. Mount Carmel is a place of isolation. And every once in a while we've got to be a place where we can isolate, where we can really focus on the Lord. But it's also a place of elevation. You hear about people talking about those mountaintop experiences? Elisha, over and over again, would go back. Over and over again, would go back. That's why we do retreats all the time. We men's retreat, women's retreat, a couple's retreat. The, the whole point of it all is to find that time of isolation. We can separate from all the chaos and elevation where we can really focus on the Lord, draw near to Him. And this is what he was doing, the man of God. So it was when the man of God saw her far, far off that he said to his servant, Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now, go meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? So he runs down and says that to her. And she answered, it is well. I love it because it's not well. Her child's dead. But like the woman who had the flow of blood, who believed all I got to do is get to Jesus. This woman believes all I got to do is get to Elisha. 
And Elisha can go before the Lord for me. Elisha can, can help. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, listen to this, she caught him by the feet. So she jumps off that donkey, which, wow, amen. Uh, that's a long road she just took. Jumps off that donkey, runs over and grabs Elisha by the feet. I mean, it reminds me exactly of the woman who just had to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus. That's her faith. I just got to get to Elisha. I just got to get to the man of God. If I get to the man of God, it's going to be okay. It'll be okay. But she would not count her son dead till the man of God said, he's gone. So she throws herself on the ground and grabs his feet. But, but, but Gehazi came near to push her away. The man of God said, let her alone. Her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Elisha and the Lord were tight, and God would show Elisha incredible things. But he never showed Elisha what was going on with the Shunammite woman. But when he saw her on the ground, weeping, holding on to his feet, he knew. Because the only thing in the world she ever wanted was that child. And the only thing that would bring her to this distress would be the child. Look what Elisha does. So she said, did I not ask, or did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he says to Gehazi, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If anyone meets you, don't even greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. So he says, take the staff. And run to the child. Don't say hi. If someone says hi, don't stop and say hi back. Just go. Fast as you can get there, get to the child. Get to the child and lay my staff on him. The staff is a symbol of authority in the, in the scriptures. A symbol of authority. Put, put that authority on him. Put that authority down and lay it across his face. And so the mother, uh, the mother of the child said, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. She said, I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to be with you no matter what happens. No matter what happens. But listen, God's people are not just people of authority. They are also agents of healing and compassion. And sometimes when we deal with people, we, we tend to deal with them first based on our authority. And maybe the, the scriptures we share, the things we say, we, we are focused on the authority that we have or the authority in the scripture, which it has. But there's not always life in that. You know, you can end an argument over the Bible being right and somebody walking away still not knowing Jesus, right? Well, he runs on ahead. He's got that staff, the symbol of the authority. It says, Gehazi went ahead of them, and he laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither a voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. No awakening. The authority didn't bring it. The staff didn't do anything. There's no reaction at all. And sometimes it's that way. Sometimes that we share with someone who's dead, someone who's not alive in Christ, and we're trying to share with them, but we're too busy pointing out all the flaws in their failed concepts of Scripture. 
or their misunderstanding about the Bible, and we end up in an argument with somebody. I've never, ever, ever in all my life argued somebody into the kingdom of God. Never. Maybe some of you have. I have never seen that how I've argued somebody until they got up and left my house. But I have never seen them enter into the kingdom of God because of arguing. Not that the points I was talking about were not correct. But authority, sometimes that's not the way. Sometimes we need to remember we're agents of compassion. We're agents of healing. We're agents that can show the truth of God in other ways. Well, look what, look what he did. So when Elisha came into the house, there was a child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them. So the mom's in there with him. And he prayed to the Lord. Listen. He didn't do a bunch of other stuff first. The number one most neglected thing in the life of every believer is prayer. And I don't care how much you do it, you don't do it enough. I don't care if you do it two hours in the morning and six hours at night. It's not enough. As soon as you think, I have done enough praying, you are utterly and completely fooled. There's no such thing. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Continually, all the time. I, I Once upon a time, I was not really all that excited about praying, to be honest with you. I would pray and I'd make my simple request and I'm done and that's good. I actually pray in a totally different way now. Praying to me is communing with God, just being in his presence. I can speak, I cannot speak. I can sit there and tell him for 20 minutes just how much I love him and how blessed I am of all the things that he does and give him thanks and I have not wasted a moment because I'm in his presence and it's the most beautiful place to be. That's where I want to stand. It's what I want to enjoy. It's what I want to see. We got to learn to be people of prayer because as we sowed the seeds of revival, what do you think is going to water that? Our efforts? Our abilities in the flesh? Man, the way that we're going to water the seed of revival is by travailing in prayer. While weeping over the souls that are lost. By coming before the Lord as often as we can. The first thing Elisha does, he comes in a room. He prays. He prays. Not the last thing. Not like we do, right? First I try to write a check and solve the problem. Then I try to do this and solve the problem. Then I try to do that. And finally, all I have left is prayer. I got it backwards. All I ever had in the beginning was prayer. And we have to learn. We have to learn to make prayer a vital part of our life. He prayed to the Lord. And he went up and he laid on the child and he put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. The, what do we see him doing? When the, when the authority didn't work, what do we see? A personal touch. When Jesus healed the leper, you remember how he did it? He could have done a hundred things, right? He's God. He could have just said, you're better, brother. But what did he do? He touched him. Do you know Jesus as a rabbi, that would make him ceremonially unclean. It was unlawful for him to touch someone who was unclean. Of course, when you're God, there's not too many people who are clean to touch. 
And he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he said, I am willing. He reached out and he touched him. A man who hadn't been touched since he was diagnosed with leprosy. Probably the main thing he had craved all that time in his life was a, was a physical touch from another human being. And Jesus gave it to him. Sometimes there's got to be that, that physical touch. Sometimes life is, gosh, I don't know, life is messy. And sometimes in order to affect change in someone's life, you've got to get messy too. Sometimes they're stuck down in a mud hole and there's just no way to get in there without getting a little mud on yourself. Without having to deal with a mess. Hopefully being part of a solution. Listen, just like you and I need a personal touch from Christ, this, every person who is dead and not in Christ, every person who doesn't know him needs a personal touch from Christ. Elisha becomes that symbol for this boy. He lies on him, and his flesh begins to get warm. Then look what it says. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house. And when it says he returned, what I see is he got up. What was he doing? It says he returned. What was he doing? Praying. Remember, he walked in the room, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went over, and there was a personal touch of Christ in the life of this, this dead person. He lays on that dead person. And then it says he got up and he returned. What did he return to? He returned to praying. He returned to praying because you can't ever do too much of that. So he returns. And then it says he went again and went up and stretched himself out upon him. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That, there's a lot of things in that sentence, by the way. It said effective, so your prayers have to be effective for them to work. What makes our prayers effective is when they're aligned with God, with who God is, with God being central, with God's word. So our prayers are in line, that makes them effective. What's fervent? Passionate. Most of the time when we pray, we are barely keeping ourselves awake. You pray with passion. When you talk about, if you were a Baltimore Ravens fan, you talked with passion about the power outage. You say there's a power outage for 35 minutes in a Super Bowl. That's unfair. It changed all the momentum of the whole game, and you get passionate about it. If you're a San Francisco 49ers fan, you're talking about the call that they didn't make at the end of the game when they, when they held on to that receiver, and he didn't score. And so the Baltimore Ravens win, and you're talking with passion. Oh, you can't believe they blew that call. We can talk with passion about cars. We can talk about passion about movies. We can talk about, with, with passion about a million things. So don't tell me you can't pray with it. If you value it, you can be passionate about it. If you don't value it, you won't. The effective, fervent, or passionate prayer of a righteous man. What makes a man righteous? He's standing with God. He's standing with God. Being in that right place with, with the Lord. It avails much. So he laid on the child. He prayed. He laid on the child. He got up. He prayed. He laid on the child again. And the scripture says, Then the child sneezed seven times. That cracks me up. You'd expect some flash, right? Light hits and the wind blows and the thunder rolls and the child gets up. Sometimes there's no flash. Sometimes there's just a few sneezes. 
But it doesn't change the fact that God's moving. And the child gets up. He opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. By the way, that, that phrase, bowed to the ground, is the word shakah. Shakah in the Hebrew is a word used to worship. Not that she worshipped Elisha, but she falls down at the feet of the representation of God for the people in that day. And she is thankful. Before she picks up her son, before she touches the one thing that she wanted more than anything else, she's thankful to God. Jesus said one of the things that would come about in the last days is men would be unthankful. They wouldn't care. See, we can get so centrally focused that all we can see is what we don't have. We are so spoiled in the U.S. I mean, are you aware of that? We are very, very, very spoiled. I don't even know if there's enough varies that we could put before spoiled. We are very spoiled. And like spoiled children, one little thing goes wrong in our day, and we think, you know, somehow we're equal to some third world country somewhere. I've been places where they are not ever, they're going to live their entire life on a dirt floor, not tile, not carpet, not even concrete, dirt. That the rats are walking around in the grass. That the bugs are so stinking big, I'm afraid to fall asleep because I might snore and a bug crawl in my mouth. They put a giant net around you just because if you get stung by a mosquito, there's a very high probability that you're going to get malaria. And malaria is a gift that keeps giving. And they live in it every day and complain sometimes less than we do. We're spoiled. We have to learn to be thankful, to thank God. It's nothing. It's not some great sin that we live here, and I don't want you to feel bad because we do. Praise God that God chose us worthy to be here. Be thankful. Be thankful for what he's given us. Be thankful for what we do have. And she thanked him, and then she went to her son. Now, verse 38 says, And Elisha returned to Gilgal. Now, that's where one of the schools of the, of the prophets were. And there was a famine in the land. Now, this is a famine we'll see again in, in chapter 8. It's another famine, just like the one Elijah brought on the land. And it says, Elisha returned. There was famine in the land. Now, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he got to his servant. And he put, a large, put on the large pot and boiled stew for the sons of the prophets. Now, there's a famine. One. Two, no food. Get a pot and boil a stew. Stew would imply to me meat. If you invite me over to your house and you say, Jackie, we're going to have stew. But what you have is vegetable soup. I just want you to know, that's not stew. Stew has meat. If it don't have meat, it is almost a complete meal. You got the appetizer covered, the snack, but there's got to be some of that flaky meat down in the stew. But these guys don't have any. He says, go get a pot and make some stew. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So one of the guys went out into the field to gather herbs. So this is why it's a stew. 
It's one of them meals we used to make in the Marine Corps, so I understand it. Is you get there, and you start a fire, and you're in a camp, and you're hungry, but all you got is an MRE, which is a meal ready to eat, that comes in a bag. You open the bag, and it's like, poof, it's ready to eat. No, it's not. You take that food and give it to an animal in the wild, and it will turn its nose up and go the other way. Nothing else wants to eat it. It tastes like styrofoam. So then we start to put a pot on, and we get this water hot, and we just start dumping it all in. We dump chicken a la king in there. We dump meat patties in there. We dump all this dehydrated junk in. We pour it all in that pot, and out comes stew. Why is it stew? Because it's got meat in it. So they're trying to do the same thing here. They're, they're saying, well, let's go out. We've got to find something to put in it. So they went out to the field to gather herbs. Well, we never did that. We didn't really look for herbs because, <laughs> to be honest, we didn't care about that stuff. But, you know, these guys were vegans. And they found a wild vine and gathered it, gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds. Now, I have occasionally been out hunting and thought that I was starving to death. But I have yet to look at a gourd on the ground and think... I want that. This gourd is called a citrullus colosynthus. That's the fancy scientific name. It is a very harsh laxative. You can't make this stuff up, guys. It's right here in the Bible. He grabbed a lap full of a gourd that is a very harsh laxative. Not only that, if you took enough, it could kill you. But it's a very harsh laxative. And they came and they sliced them into the pot of stew. Now they're hungry. It's a famine. They don't have a lot of food. Though they did not know what they were. (laughs) I get a little scared of mystery meat and mystery vegetables. But they apparently were unafraid. And they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out, Man of God, there's death in the pot. Now you understand why they were crying out, right? They're all scattering in a different way. Oh, there's death in the pot. And he said, Bring me some flour. And he put it in the pot, and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Sometimes we go out and we try to solve problems by picking the poison out of things. You ever try to do that? We try to, you know, rent a movie we shouldn't rent, but we're just going to fast forward to scenes you shouldn't see or skip them. We're trying to, to pick the poison out. They can't. Pick the poison out. You can't pick the poison out of the pot. What Elisha did is he poured the word in. See, the the flour, the meal is a picture of the word. Man cannot live by what? Bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bread, the meal. So, So he just kept pouring the word in. And the word going in got rid of the poison all by itself. 
And we have to realize in our lives, hey, I don't want to be central. I want to keep God central. And we think there's no way that I can accomplish it. The word, word of God is so boring. It's so lame. It's so dumb. I want to read that romance novel that really makes me feel like my marriage is inadequate. Or I want to read that, that fantasy book that lets me go into another world so I don't have to deal with the one I'm in. You know, after I close the pages of those books, I'm still here. I get away for a little while, but last I checked, getting away and not dealing with our issues doesn't help our issues, does it? It doesn't make us better, but if we pour the Word in, the Word of God changes us from the inside out. The Bible is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to do more than we can even imagine. I don't understand it. Listen, the Bible says that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. If you read the Bible and you struggle with understanding and connecting, your primary problem might be that you have not or do not have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because the Word of God is spiritually discerned. I, I, I get lost reading the Bible, studying the Word, learning, pulling mysteries out of it. I get excited about the things that I can learn. Part of that excitement comes because I understand how to utilize some tools that can help me do that. Maybe part of your problem is, you know, it's not that you don't have the Spirit of God in you, but maybe you just need a little bit of help. So ask. If you want to get the poison out of your life, you're not going to pick the poison out. How many people I know that say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to concentrate on not cussing, and I'll stop cussing. I've never met somebody for whom that works. I don't believe it does. Because when my focus is to stop cussing, every time I stub my toe, you know what I want to do? Cuss. Oh, preachers don't cuss. We don't. When I stub my toe, however, if there was a projector in my head that would project what's going on in my mind, it would sound a lot like the guys who are just letting it flow out of their mouth. How do we get that poison out of us? We pour the word in. And the word changes us from the inside out. Amen. The exciting thing was the day I stubbed my toe and nothing come out. Wow, I'm all excited, limping back in the house. Kathy, you're not going to believe it. She's somewhat less excited than I was. But as we pour the meal in, as we pour the word in, that's the work that God does. One last story that we want to take a look at. It says now in verse 42, Then a man from Baal Shalisha uh, came, and he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, newly ripened grain in a knapsack, and he said, this is Elisha. So he comes and he brings him the first fruits. First fruits is supposed to go to the priests. But in the northern kingdom, there's no priests. So they bring it to the man of God. He's trying to give an offering to the Lord. And he comes to Elisha and he gives it to him. And Elisha looks around. There's a lot of people. They're in famine. A lot of people are hungry. So he comes with 20 loaves. And Elisha says, feed them. That sound familiar? 
You remember Jesus saying to the disciples one day, uh, the people are hungry. And the disciples said, yeah, send them away. And Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. We don't have anything, just a few loaves and a couple fish. Little is much in the hands of the Lord, isn't it? Look what happens. Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? So we, we think there was at least 100 there. And he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they will eat and have some left over. So he set it before them. They ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Look, in each one of these stories, this is what we see. We see people not making themselves the main part of the life, but making the Lord the main part of their life, and being willing to be poured out for Him. Being willing to pour out their oil into empty vessels. Being willing to apply meal to their life to drive out the poison. Being willing to come to the man of God and seek that one thing that you really need, and to believe that God will do what He said He would do. To realize that God is able to meet our needs. He will meet our needs. This is what the psalmist said. The last, the thought I want to leave you guys with. The psalmist said, God said, no good thing will I withhold. Do you hear that? No good thing will I withhold. If God doesn't give you something you're praying for, then what does that mean? It's not good. What? Yeah. But I'm praying for healing. It's not good. See, I believe God's word is 100% absolutely true no matter what. No matter how it looks to me any other way, I believe it's absolutely, completely, totally true. And I believe that God's ways are higher than my ways. And I don't always understand everything that God does and the whys that He does it. But I know this. He will not withhold from me any good thing. And I trust Him. And I want Him, the Lord, to be the center point of my life. Not my needs not my wants, not my whining, not my poor, pitiful, hurt feelings. I'm just not that important. But He is. He is worthy to be praised. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank You for this time we could spend studying Your Word. God, I thank You for the work of Elisha and the fact that on the pages of Scripture, God, you, God there's just so much for You to teach us, so much that we need to, to know. I pray, Lord, that we would truly, like You spoke at the, at the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, that we truly would hunger and thirst for You. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. For he who hungers and thirsts will be filled. God, I pray that we would put our faith and trust in you no matter how things look, no matter what, how things are coming together, Lord, that we would remember and realize, God, that you're doing amazing things. And, and even though we may not see or understand them all, we can trust you. We can trust you and say, 
Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Job knew, no matter what happens, God is good. No matter how it looks, God is good. No matter how I feel, God is good. No matter what happens, I will trust him. So the Lord declares, Do not grow weary in doing good, for you will reap a harvest if you do not lose heart. God, may we never lose heart and always trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.